Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Today we've got a panel of a copper experts, our own green elves from all around the world. You're going to talk to us about the kind of green thematic that's going on, on at the moment. We uh, are joined today by Byron uh, King, a market commentator uh, and advisor to a number of companies. We've got Hayden Locke, President and CEO of Maramaca, a Chilean uh, copper uh, developer, and David uh, Kelly and Doug Silver from Chicana Copper, going to give us a little bit of insight into uh, exploration in South America and also uh, a little bit on the macro. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today, uh, especially you, Doug. You're just in a queue to get your uh, booster jab. So, uh, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, should be fun. Oh. I'm gonna I'm gonna kick off, Doug. Yes. I'm gonna start with you, Doug, uh, if if I may. Just and if we lose you, we know why now. Um, on the macro, let's talk about the drivers for macro supply demand uh, numbers. What, what can you tell us for people new to investing in copper? I, th I think you need to look at, at you know, the 100,000 foot view rather than the 50. And here's, here's basically what's happened. Even before the pre-pandemic, we knew there was a massive short supply uh, of it coming on. And, and the reason for it is that the copper mines are taking longer to permit. The capital costs are in, in the multi-billions, which is very hard to raise. Ever since 2009, when the big banks pulled out of financing mining and the PEs had to step in, this became a big issue. You then had the pandemic where mines were shut down or they were slowed down and all of that capacity was lost at this. And then the post pandemic, what do we have? We have supply chain problems, which means you can't get stuff in and out of ports. So you can't export your copper. You can't import your parts. We have inflation now on costs, which is just going to make this capital problem exacerbated. And, um, and then permitting continues to be long. So all of that is going to massively impact supply. Okay, big, big, big copper companies, he's off. He's getting a jab, folks. This is live. Uh, big copper companies um, need and depend on exploration and development companies to go find, first of all, find that copper and prove it up. Um, but before we, it's, it's actually happening, I can't believe it. Um, don't get distracted by a near naked man, folks. This is all about copper. Uh, we, Byron, I'm going to come to you, actually, if I may, uh, well, if, if we can avert our eyes from Doug. Um, what do you think Big Copper's looking for over and above the, you know, the, these, you know, juniors finding copper for them? What's important for them to do business? Well, the first thing to, to do when you want to find out what they're, what they think is important, look at their presentations, look at what they talk about at their analyst meetings and things like that. And you might think that a copper company would be talking about copper or the price of energy or logistics or you know the price of steel and concrete, the things they need to do their job. When you look at the presentations of these big guys, you know, the BHPs of the world, uh, the Rio Tintos of the world, Norilsk, a Russian company that mines a lot of copper, it's all about what they call ESG, environmental sustainability and governance. And th they, they devote immense amounts of, uh, of reader time and eyeball time to, uh, to, you know, here's what we're doing to go to be as carbon neutral as possible. We want to lower our carbon footprint. This is what they're talking about. We're lower our carbon footprint. We're, you know, we're doing everything we can to diversify our workforce. We're doing everything we can to be, you know, good neighbors, good stewards and everything else. Uh, and that is a sign of the times. Uh, and so when you think that, you know, oh, you know, good, a copper company, all they, they want to go out there and find those great deposits and, you know, build them and mine copper and sell it into a, a hot market. 
All of that's true, but there's an entire other layer of, of, of uh, issues surrounding that. Now you say, well, that's, that's nice for big copper, but what about these juniors? How am I going to, am I going to buy a good junior and watch it, you know, be a multi-bag hit for my portfolio? Well, here's, here's something that the juniors need to focus on. They need to start talking about this ESG as well. If you're not, you had better get there. Uh, I'd, I'd used the analogy in the U.S. some years ago. They passed a law called Sarbanes-Oxley, which was all about the financial records. And if you're a small company and you wanted to get bought by a big company, you had to get your books up to these Sarbanes-Oxley standards just in terms of finances so that you could be immediately accretive to the, to the buyer. I think the same thing's going on right now in the world of, of mining and certainly in copper. If you want to, if you're a junior and you want to get yourself into the eyeballs and into the, into the telescope of the, uh, of the big copper companies, you also, aside from just the exploration, which is hard and the drilling and putting your resource together and all the things that you're used to hearing about for decades from, you know, junior companies, you have to, you know, put the ESG into that as well. So, so I think that's a critical point for uh, investors to, to look at is, is, are these companies, you know, talking the talk when it comes to, uh, uh, the things that big copper is interested in, but but why, what's driving that? Because you said all the other things are important, and they are. You, you got to find it, you got to mine it economically, and then there's a there's a massive you know um, well supply gap at, at the moment, um, and you know fitting this into this electric revolution electric, with electric vehicles predominantly, but also these huge infrastructure plays in China across Europe and in the US. There's there's this gap needs to be filled, surely we don't need to worry about things like ESG. We've got to get on mine, don't we, Hayden? Well, I think the mining industry has had to change uh, for the better because, you know, obviously we have a track record of, uh, of creating some environmental issues, you know, many, many years ago, and it has quite rightly become an extreme focal point for the mining industry. So, you know, I actually, I don't think you can do that now. And I don't think the, the, the global community will accept that approach from mining companies. Uh, I think what they've got to realise is if they want us to operate under this strict ESG regime, which we're all happy to do, it will cause price inflation and it will cause inflation in costs for us as an industry going forward. But it is becoming a massive focus, as Byron said, uh, you know, even for small companies like us, it's, it's key for us to focus on it. It's even more of a focus for the big companies now. Okay, and what about for David? You're you know you're an explorer, right? Budgets are tight. You don't want to be spending money on ESG communication at this point. Do you need to? Well, you know, for the most part, um, there's already a lot of that going on. You know, uh, Doug just joined our board. You know, just in April of this year, and you know, he came in and said, "You you guys are doing some great things with ESG." You know, I really like what you're doing. In fact, he even compared our ESG. Uh, program to that of uh, of a mid tier, but he said you, you you need to communicate it better. You need to put it in writing. You need to demonstrate what we're doing, and that's what we're working on now. So I think there's already a lot of great work that's actually being done in that. It just you know it's not front and center, and that's what uh, that's what. Byron and Hayden are, are commenting about, you know, let's get that front and center. Let's show people what we're doing. Cause I'm, I'm really proud of the things and the strides that the mining industry has taken in these, in these regards. I think there's some great things going out there and, and, and a lot of people aren't aware of the, of the, you know, the, the work that's being done to protect the environment, the social uh, enrichment that we do in our programs. And, you know, it, it's time that we step forward and, and communicate that to the, you know, to the market. Is it harder or more and expensive? Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, we can, Doug. Hi. 
Far away. Let, let, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got disconnected. Let me just follow up on that. And 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 I didn't catch all of Byron's because I got disconnected. But here's the thing. ESG has been around for 40 years. It used to be called triple bottom line. It's been called social responsibility. What it really is, is repackaging of existing practices in the mining industry. The reason it's getting high attention is because of the Davos Convention where stakeholder capitalism has kicked in and the big companies are all endorsing it. But a lot of it is simply repackaging practices that mining companies are already doing. And with respect to the juniors, the juniors do need to adopt these. As I said, Dave's, Dave's done a great job with Chicana. And then because of the work I did with Orion Mine Finance, where we're doing ESG analysis every day, I've helped them beef it up. But it's, it's not a real new concept. It's just like I said, it's just being rebuilt. Yeah, and I, look, I hear both sides of that argument. Um, in, 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 you know, and I think um, Hayden, you know, referred to earlier and saying, you know, mining has not necessarily always had the best track record. So the the spotlight on it, I think, is going to help people to get focused on doing it properly. Whatever it was called before, I agree with you. It has been around in various guises for the last forty years. Some people, uh, you know, better others than doing it, but generally mining's not got a good rap and it needs to up its game. And if, but, but I'm, I'm, I kind of like Hayden's point though, that yeah, we can do this, but it's, it may cost you more money. Things may take a little bit longer. Um, and you need to, you know, we don't, we're not going to take, we're not going to have our margins affected by that. But is that something that you could even possibly think about controlling Hayden? Yeah, and I think the, the one area that I think has become far more of a focal point is the sustainability issue for the mining industry. Uh, so, you know, and that's really, although we've been talking about it for a long time, it hasn't necessarily been um, the high focus that it is today where mining companies like Rio Tinto announcing a $7.5 billion investment over the next decade to greenify and, and build more sustainability into their, into their energy portfolios, I think it is definitely becoming, uh, you know, a, a new uh, paradigm for the mining industry as we move forward. You know, I, I think going back to that point, it is important to have fit for purpose uh, ESG frameworks for smaller companies and they grow with you as, as a company. Um, but, you know, the, the point I made, I think, still stands. We will gladly wrap it into our uh, cost structures, but it will have an impact on our overall cost structures as we deliver the end product. I, I, let me, can I add something to that? It, is that uh, you, you see a lot of uh, ESG requirements in a very structured way coming from the financial side of life. I mean, if you're going to be borrowing money from you know most of the big banks in the world, if you're going to be not just borrowing, but just even doing your your day to day you know financing and, and money management through them, you know they 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 don't want you as a customer unless you can put a particular packaged uh, product of of ESG onto the onto the table. To, to show them, it's it's become a very uh, uh, it, it's become a very rigid process in many ways. You you see it in a lot of other things too. I mean, you know, I mean, you've got banks that won't loan to say oil companies to drill for oil, you know, things like that. This, uh, you you've got to you've got to jump through those hoops, and it's been around for a long time, but but it's really becoming a, a serious hoop to jump through now. I mean, you, there's no there's no fudging it. There, there's there's certain specifications that. That, that I think you you have to meet. And to the extent we've been doing it for 40 years, yeah, but now you really have to document it and you have to, you have to, doc it's almost like a 43101 
you know, instead of the geology, it's the sociology of, of what you're doing and how you're doing it. And I guess what investors are like, investors are trying to work out is, is it going to affect their ability to make money because of the, the, the additional costs involved? And should they be looking elsewhere? Or do you think that it's just going to be factored into the cost of, of mining? And as an investment class, mining is still highly relevant and it's uh, it's got the ability to help you know, investors make money. I mean, do you, do you think that ESG affects people's ability to make money? I do not. I think I think there's tremendous money to be made in the resource sector and in resource stocks. Uh, and you know, you know, copper. Since we're talking about copper, I mean, you know, copper and the associated things that come out of it. You know, copper, lead, zinc, copper, gold, silver, copper. You know, and and uh, you know, molybdenum that is a byproduct. There's tremendous money in that. The world is going to a place where it absolutely needs these these metals. Uh, most people uh, most people don't don't have a clue, you know what what goes on. They don't they don't they don't know why their iPhone works. You know they don't know any, they, they don't they don't know what makes the world work. But they're they're going to learn, and and they're going to learn, or the lights are going to go out, and you know they can they can figure it out in the dark while they're cold. But uh, but you better figure it out if you're out there. But there is tremendous money to be made in the sector. You've got to look for companies that are, you know, finding the right resources, the right ore bodies. Grade is king, you know. The, the better, you know, the, the the more the merrier. The higher the grade, the better. Uh, but and then then management. Do you have management that can navigate this ore deposit through all the different wickets that it has to do, you know, to get to a point where there where there's a, an exit, as in you get bought out, you know, or they take it to the next step and they announce we're going to build a mine or do whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think from my perspective, these more onerous uh, provisions that we, we live by every day only make me more bullish on the price of the commodities that we'll be mining in the future uh, because it's not just about, you know, the, sink- the operating cost of the mines that are in production. It's also about the ability to get new mines into production. You know, I think uh, Doug made the point to start with, uh, there is a huge shortage of copper coming in the next 10 years. How do you address that? it becomes even more challenging when you wrap in these new ESG frameworks that we all have to adhere to in the mining industry. But also, heading to your point earlier about change, so I may just ask this question because I think it's highly pertinent to what's been said. You talk about the need for mining to change, but with various critical, I know copper is not a critical mineral, but it kind of is the backdrop to this critical mineral lists all around the world. This electric uh, vehicle revolution and infrastructure rev- yeah, that's that's being um, planned all around the world. Copper demand is going through the roof, and I've just said we've just said, in fact we've also seen um, you know the LME changing its copper trading rules um, recently. It seems like there's a kind of paradigm shift in the way that miners are expected to behave, and not not just with the with with the ESG, but in terms of how trading happens further down uh, the line. In fact, you know, where's this money coming from if you don't adhere to these rules? It, it's a it's a very different place now, even from it feels like ten years ago. So, I mean, first of all, what's your reaction to the LME changing the copper trading rules for a start? Well, I think it's really, you know, incredibly interesting for the short-term supply dynam- dynamics of the copper industry. You know, I, I read it with a great deal of interest. Uh, copper inventories in the LME dropping to their lowest level in in uh, decades, and you know, the the premium for delivery of the three-month forward contract spiking to its highest level in in uh, ever. I think it was it was a thousand dollars a ton, which is just incredible. Uh, you know, caused a lot of consternation in the industry. Look, I think it is a short-term issue rather than something that changes my overall view on copper. It doesn't make me any more or less bullish. I think it is 
part of the short-term machinations, again, coming from this supply chain disruptions and, and uh, mine supply disruptions. Um, but it is a very interesting market dynamic and, and there will almost certainly be swings uh, in the commodity price which present opportunities to make money. But, but the, I guess the long-term long trend is up, which is one thing. But if we, if we look at last week, the, the you know, trading in nickel, copper, et cetera, um, was hugely erratic. You know, there are huge swings in there. And I think these, some of these smaller traders perhaps had their face ripped off, whereas the, the big boys were sort of licking their lips and just going, okay, we, we, we can take advantage of this. We saw, you know, Trafigura, you know, come to, come to play here. And I suspect the rest of the big boys did too. So do you think that, again, the, the number of players is going to change? The people with the biggest balance sheets are going to be the winners in, in all of this. Is the market shape going to change? Well, in the short term, almost certainly those who control uh, the physical supply, like Trafigura do, uh, now as the largest, largest physical trader in copper, over having overtaken Glencore, they're going to have a huge advantage in their ability to move copper in and out of warehouses and, and change the way things are traded in the short term. In the long term, I think it's noise. And I think we've got to focus more on when do the Chinese start restocking, uh, and and what's that going to do in the next five to ten years? If, if you look at if you look at uh, people like Glencore taking ten percent position in in hot chili, you know you you're starting to see people you know and they they perhaps always have been been upstream. But do you think we're going to see more of that? I mean, would you expect that sort of move? Strategic energy partners coming in and taking positions to be able to secure a supply. Absolutely, absolutely. We're seeing not just Glencore doing that again, uh, but we're also seeing more, I say, I put it in inverted commas, boring old mining businesses like Anglo-American building out their trading divisions and looking to try and secure supply to fit into their broader trading mandate because they know that they can make additional money with their infrastructure networks. So, yeah, absolutely. Glencore is a classic trader. You know, they'll buy when they think the opportunity to make money is there and they'll sell as they, we know that they've got a couple of processes on at the moment, or at least a process on to sell another copper mine. So you know, I think we'll see them invest when they see the opportunity and divest when they see the opportunity as well. Okay, Doug, um, don't know if Doug's with us. Uh, Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, Doug. Like one for you. This point made there about the Chinese economy. You know, we, we've seen reports out of China. To, uh, you know, obviously off the off the back of. Uh, you know, the, the property market um, problems that they've had. Talking about cooling production, being, being less of a producer of, of materials. Um, do you think the Chinese economy potentially cooling off is a big problem for copper or is, the, is it just bigger than that? Well, no, the, the, you, you have to understand the Chinese uh, game plan, which is to control the resources and so, you know, they've been big buyers of porphyry coppers and giant copper mines all over the world. They've done an absolutely miserable job when it comes to ESG, which is why they've been getting in trouble and maybe pulling back a bit. But the Chinese need copper more than we do because a lot more of them. And, you know, there's two pieces that are missing in this equation. The first is the human population continues to grow. So the demand for copper is always going to be going up. But when you have these supply chain problems and, and all, all the other things with permitting and what have you and financing being an issue, the problem is only going to get exacerbated. So what does that mean? Well, that's wonderful for copper prices, which is very, very important to the small copper companies, because since they're small, their margins are smaller than the large companies. So they need a, a wider gap on their margin, and that makes them more sustainable 
more profitable and quite frankly, a better investment than the big copper companies that, that are, you know, have, have really established what their margin can only be. So the big companies are going to continue to buy the small companies. That's not going to change at all. And, um, and on the ESG thing, ESG is a cost, but for a company like Chicana, it's a very small cost. And for the big mining companies, once they get their acts together and get reorganized under the new paradigm, um, you know, other than community cost, I don't think the cost is going to be um, significant relative to other costs that they incur. So just to kind of summarize a lot of different points here, the Chinese need copper, the U.S. needs copper. Electric vehicles take seven times more copper than, than fossil fuel. And as we shift away, that's just going to put more pressure on the need for more copper. Then you got the charging stations. Biden announced this morning wants to build 500,000 charging stations. That takes copper. Copper's got an amazing future. But uh, what, what does that do for a company like, you know, like Chicana, you know, uh, like Marimaka, where we, we've seen it in the lithium space. You've got Chinese players like Gangfeng coming in before the US, the West has woken up and just buying up these assets because they got the cash and they, they can move a lot quicker. Are we going to see something similar with, with copper? Because we, we talked about the big guys coming in, picking up copper projects, but they need these copper projects to be you know, meaningfully advanced with big numbers behind them before they'll pull the trigger. Whereas the Chinese, they'll, they'll go a little bit quicker. Is that going to be a problem down the line? Well, it's always a problem. Um, you know, the Chinese have gotten a lot smarter. They used to not care about economics, they do now. Um, but based on research I did years ago, there's about 900 porphyry copper deposits in the world. So there's plenty of supply for everybody. The problem is the low cost ones, there's very few. And China is, is trying to pick off all the ones they can where the US and, and Europe do nothing. I mean, basically it's an open field for the Chinese to buy stuff up because the US and, and Europe won't compete. So yeah, they're gonna eventually control the copper market and it's to their advantage because if they control supply, they can move it across into their factories in China, which are low cost. And it just gives them a greater profit margin when they sell us stuff um, off their ports. And so what does it do for, Doug, I just want to stick with you for a second and maybe Byron, you can come in here, which is what, what does Biden's administration's policy of, you know, the, the big green economy and all of these demands for 500,000 charging ports and electric cars and so on, but we don't want to do mining in our jurisdiction. Is that good news for South American producers? Oh yeah. Well, listen, you know, the, the largest slug of capital always goes into South America. So that's not going to change. Mr. Biden's policies, and by the way, for the record, I'm an independent. Mr. Biden's policies are basically environmental imperialism. You know, we want the product, but we don't want the mines. And, um, and I've been involved in webinars this year with, with uh, various agencies in, in, in Washington, D.C. The U.S. has no national mineral policy. And every time they say they want to do something, they do it wrong. And uh, this is particularly good in securing rare earth supplies. They've done an absolutely horrible job. And, uh, and copper, you know, there's something like 15 copper projects in the U.S. right now that are arrested in development because they're in lawsuits. You know, somebody with five grand can stop a $2 billion mine for, for 15 years. They, they try to wait you out and the government won't do their work and honor the regulations the way they've been written. So your answer is Biden's not going to lift a finger for the copper industry in the U.S. They're going to have to do it in other ways. So hey, Hayden, how do you take advantage of that? I'm, I'm not sure it's obvious how we how we take advantage of it, other than you know we're in a jurisdiction where investment is welcome and mines are welcome to be built, and so 
You know, I think that's true of Peru. It's true of Chile. Uh, you know, all of these jurisdictions have their challenges. But, um, you know, for us, we're, we're very much focused on just trying to get our copper mine into production to take advantage of what are, what are really favourable tailwinds at this point in the cycle. Um, you know, I'm not looking at what's happening in the US other than the fact that it's delaying supply, which previously was in models, uh, economic models for the, for the forecasters of what's going to happen for commodity prices. Uh, it just makes us even more excited to be building our project into current current environment. And David, would you absolutely, think, do you, David? Do you think that I mean retiming? Okay, you you know we we've talked a few times about your projects. You know they've they've got great potential there, but do you think you're going to be able to hit this cycle, or do you think that this is just the beginning of a super cycle, which you know you need to work out how to how to play it as an explorer? I think, you know, timing works in favor of, of high-grade deposits. It also works in favor of, of the copper oxide deposits like, like Hayden has. You know, these are projects that can be brought on quickly. Uh, these projects uh, don't require a massive amount of development. The CapEx is a lot, uh, is a lot um, lower. The, the, uh, the permitting requirements are, are quicker uh, because we're not talking about massive developments and billions of dollars of CapEx to, to mine low-grade copper. You know, 0.34% uh, oxide copper in an in a SXEW type of uh, setting is, is very economic. You know, we're we're drilling, um, you know, two percent plus copper equivalent with gold and silver uh, on our project. So great is king, like, like uh, Byron said. And I think there's going to be greater focus on the quality of the copper. Where does copper come from? Is it quality copper or is it these massive, you know, giant, you know, a lot of the world's copper comes from giant open pits that are, you know, 0.28 to 0.35 percent copper. That's really, really low grade. So as greater scrutiny is, is placed on ESG and sustainability, I think you're going to see that projects that are uh, leachable or, or high grade uh, sulfide projects are going to are going to do really well. Okay. And Byron, I'm over to you. I mean, what, what are you hearing sort of on the street, as it were, in terms of, you know, where people are prepared to put their money? Because, you know, you know, I, 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 some people are like working in Africa. Some people like South America. We've just, we've just, you know, heard from Doug that maybe America's not the uh, first world nation we thought it was when it comes to, to copper. I mean, so what, what are the, what are those sorts of feedback that you're getting about where people prefer to put their money in terms of investing in copper? Well, I don't disagree with anything that Doug said about what's going on in the U.S. and and you know, certainly under the Biden administration. I mean, they are they are geologically and metallurgically ignorant. Uh, they really don't have very many smart people uh, doing uh, the job. But then again, uh, this is not just a Biden thing. Biden's been around for you know nine or ten months, and he may be around for three more years or two or one, who knows. Uh, you know, just watch him on television. He may or may not be around. Um, and and then the next question is, you know, will will the American voters reelect this guy? in uh you know in, in 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 four years if he does happen to make it that long but but it's not just a biden thing uh anti-mining is a cultural part of the american psyche um it is it is uh, it, it it goes back deep into the 1970s really i mean we've been closing down mines and mining ops in the united states for for 45 and 50 years you know which i mean we didn't just become a non-mining nation overnight not in the, certainly not in the last you know, 10 months or even the last 10 years. You know, and that, that, that's one way to look at it. Part of it is that the U.S. dollar has always just been 
it's just easier to print dollars, give it, give, you know, run them through Wall Street. And if you need money, you just buy your stuff from overseas. That's why we have all the, you know, that's, that's why the U.S. economy is all hollowed out and deindustrialized the way it is. But getting back into the mining side, you know, in terms of like, where are people interested in, in, in putting money? Um, if you say the word California, you instantly get a no, 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 not at all. But if you cross the line into Nevada, it's like, oh, yeah, hey, you know, uh, tell me about the Nevada play. You know, tell me about the Idaho play, the Montana play. Uh, you know, okay. Um, the, uh, you know, so, so there, there's some of that. Canada has, has, you know, some great reputations there in Quebec, the Yukon, British Columbia on a good day. Uh, you move south into Mexico. People are okay with Mexico. Move into South America. Uh, Peru, for example, since, you know, since, while we're talking about South America. Uh, yeah, I mean, people are still willing to look at, at Peru or Chile, you know, despite the recent, you know, political issues down there. I think people are still pretty open-minded towards putting money into, into projects in Peru. Um, and again, you know, in, in Peru, I mean, politics, again, is a, it's one of those temporary things, you know, that this group wins, wins office and power now, but in six months or in a year or in two years, they won't be there. When you're talking about multi-year exploration programs and then multi-decade efforts to build a mine and operate a mine that's going to be around in 50, 60 years, you know, politics comes, politics goes. You know, the idea is, the idea gets back to, you know, you, you know how's the grade and can we do, can the management team do the engineering to put this whole thing together into a package? And then once it gets transferred into big copper, you know, I mean, a little junior copper company is never going to be the, the next Rio Tinto. Maybe it will, but probably not. Rio Tinto is the next Rio Tinto. You know, uh, Southern Copper is the next Southern Copper. BHP is the next BHP. Uh, but, but, all, but these little junior guys, they're going to get wrapped up into there because BHP and Rio, they have to replace their resources as they mine them. They have to, they have to please the investing crowd. So, so, so can I just, just, just quickly on, on, on that point, you, you hit some really important points and the commonality of what you said is that regardless of this week's politics in Peru, and it, it changes like once a year or Chile or Canada, they all have one thing in common, which is their national culture has mining in it. It's endemic to Chileans and to Canadians that mining is part of their world, where in the US it's not. And so, you know, if you're looking for investors and investors are trying to figure out which countries to look in, you got to go to countries that are mining countries. And, and this is one of the reasons that many of the countries in South America always rise to the top. Australia would rise to the top. Mexico's got some wonderful copper deposits. But, you know, the U.S. doesn't, and I, I doubt uh, the U.K. has too many copper deposits. Um, they're not considered mining countries, so people wouldn't look there. But that commonality plays a huge role in your ability to explore, develop, and, and have long-term production. It, it, well, actually, just stick with you, Byron. Do you think that the big copper, as you've phrased it, is going to have to reassess its decision-making criteria because finding big projects getting harder, finding projects with great, you're all saying it, is, is getting harder. And they're maybe going to have to step down a little bit in terms of the size of the project, size of the deals, the stage at which they enter if they are to backfill their, their resource and reserve numbers. Uh, do you see that or do you think there's hope, as Doug says, that there is enough copper, you just need, we need to work a little bit harder to find it? Well, if, if you're a, if you're a big copper mining company, I mean, you know, you, you want big deposits and you want them as big as possible. But if they're not there, they're not there, you know. And and uh, 
you know, if, if, if the Chinese have gone in there and, you know, scarfed them all up, you know, in the 1990s and early 2000s because, you know, you were too busy doing something else, um, you know, tough luck, tough luck, pal. Uh, you, you, one of the things about finding, you know, a nice high grade, you know, deposit of, you know, relatively decent scale, I mean, not some tiny little thing, but relatively, is that, you know, the best place to, to build a big mine is next, build a new mine next to an old mine. You, you, you at least start with something. Um, I, I can think of a couple of deposits that are, you know, epithermal, epithermal copper with a scarn. But guess what? If you, if you drill deep enough, there's your porphyry. You know, that's what that, they're all looking for, the big porphyry, the big magic porphyry. Okay, great. You know, uh, in, in, in Chicana's case, for example, you've got these breccia pipes, you know, and, and I, I've been there. I've seen them. I've stood on them. I've watched the core come out of the tubes uh, down there with, with Dave, Dave Kelly at my side. You know, uh, it, it's beautiful, beautiful high-grade ore coming out of those breccia pipes. Great, great material. Well, the thing is that as you drill deep, you don't, you don't seem to be able to find the bottom of it. It just keeps going. Well, that's a nice problem to have. That's a really nice problem to have. We can't find the bottom of our deposit. So we're just going to, and we're on the side of a mountain that goes down, you know, 8,000 feet or something like that. So, so, I mean, there's a lot of mining opportunities. And, and all of these things, especially certainly in the Andes, all of these deposits, they started deep in the mantle of the earth and they moved their way up. And you're looking at the energy and the mass that was transferred upwards from way down. So when you're big mining and you say, oh, you know, we can't find the big deposits that we need. Well, that's probably because, you know, you, you, you're going to have to adopt a different geological or business model in terms of what you want to develop. You know, you're going to you're gonna have to start here and just plan on going deeper and, you know, get into, the, get into that other, you know, stuff the, at a different a, depth than what you had in the last hundred years. There's a very interesting uh, conundrum facing the big mining companies now, and I think it speaks to what Dave and Byron have been referring to. And if we go back and look at the ESG frameworks, and in particular, the reporting of carbon intensity scope one, two, and three emissions for these big mining companies, uh, when you factor in the requirement to smelt a concentrate ore, uh, you know, on average per tonne of copper produced, you'll be, uh, you'll be, you'll, you'll have sixty or forty percent more carbon intensity per tonne of copper produced. If you then overlay that with much lower grades of some of these very big porphyries, that carbon intensity goes up astronomically. It's it's no longer linear; it's exponential. And so, what we're going to see, I think, is a very high focus on high grade concentrate, you know, sulphide projects that have byproducts that allow them to move much smaller tonnages uh, to produce the same amount of copper and or leachable projects uh, like what we have at Maramaca, which again has a much lower carbon intensity per tonne of copper produced. I mean, that's, that's a great point because, you know, we, we talk to, you know, lots of metal companies out there. And if I look at what's happening in nickel, you know, with there's some, you know, there's massive debate um, um, around laterites versus sulfides and, you know, low-grade multi-cycle, uh, you know, scale projects versus these sort of higher-grade projects. They, they're being directed by the ESG component, which obviously Barnes made it made a you know uh, really good points on today, um, as to you know where they would prefer their nickel to come from, uh, it's going to require more efficient technology uh, to, to be able to um, you know ex extract you know or get get good recoveries from that. Do you think that copper is going to need to? Up its game in terms of the technology, or we're or at where we're at, and you know that that's that's where it will be. And if so, who's going to pay for that? 
maybe that I, I don't know what do you think Hayden are you do you want to take that? Yeah, look, I, I think I often look at other industries and, you know, when I think of mining, it's a manufacturing business with geological risk and processing risk over, overall. But in the end, we're trying to make a widget. And if you look at other manufacturing businesses like Tesla as a car industry, the amount of investment in technology to make their, their business more efficient is just incredible. Uh, and mining has really lagged. And I think we are starting to see more investment but it's being driven by necessity rather than by the desire to be innovative. And, you know, I'm looking at Anglo-Americans' investment in waterless technology for processes, as an example. Uh, you know, some investment in autonomous trucks and, um, you know, more, uh, I, I guess, uh, autonomous underground mining techniques. So I think absolutely the mining industry needs to invest in it, but it is not a place for junior mining companies to be investing, in my opinion, because... You know, I think we have, you know, a single asset development project. Things can go wrong when you're rolling out new technology and innovative ideas and you want to be protected by a big balance sheet. The leadership has to come from the big companies. And we are seeing, as an example, Anglo-American uh, really pushing that envelope quite hard, but out of necessity. No, I think that's right. And that's that thing that would make me nervous. If you'd said, yes, junior miners should get, because we've seen a couple of cases, I think, you know, with, with a copper project, which was trying in situ uh, recoveries and it hasn't worked. It just hasn't worked. And they don't have the balance sheet or, or cash to be able to, or time, quite frankly, to, to go through a process which they're going to need, need to do. So the big boy's going to have to lead from the front there. And again, I just wonder for you guys, we're talking about developer and explorer here. Um, will there be more conversations, more hand holding? We, like we referred to earlier with hot chili, you know, with, with, with Glencore coming in where they're going to come in and maybe help you guys on the technology for help you guys on the exploration front, not just financially, but with, with, you know, boots on the ground and saying, look, we'd like what you're doing enough to maybe start a relationship with you guys. I mean, we, we, I mean, for years an explorer, um, David, you know, that's, that, that would be music to your ears, but you don't necessarily want to dilute, but you wouldn't mind their help. How yeah, you but, it? you know, we, we have Goldfields, the seventh largest gold producer in the world. That's a 20% shareholder of Takana. And, you know, they came in uh, early. They put in $8 million, and then they put in $3, three million uh, subsequent to that. So they have to do that. The big companies really have to be uh, paying attention to what's happening with the juniors. Um, and, and, you know, all the successful uh, big companies that, that have a really good, attractive growth story. If you look at uh, the quarterly report that just came out for Newcrest, they've got a very exciting growth portfolio. It's all based on investing in, in, in other companies and, and uh, you know, bringing their expertise to the table. And Goldfields has certainly done that. I mean, we're seeing that play out right now with some really amazing geophysics we're doing on our project, covering the entire mineral system. And it's being, you know, driven by the chief geophysicist in Goldfields. Um, you know, it's, it's great to have their money and to be able to advance our project with that financial support, but we also rely a lot on their technical expertise uh, that they bring to the table. And so those partnerships are really, really good for small companies uh, like us. You know, there's some concern that if you have a, a, a strategic investor uh, on your share register, that maybe that takes away some of the upside. Uh, but I, I don't think that's going to be the case with us. I think um, I think the first thing you have to do is have an attractive project that looks good economic, economically, because at the end of the 
the day, you've got to make money, regardless if you're a small, medium or, or giant company, you know, the, the, the profitability is first and foremost in terms of does this project even have the potential to go forward? And if it does, then, then you've got all these other things to uh you know, to, to address. But um, I think, I think you're going to see, uh, that's going to be a, a, a consistent theme in our, in our industry is the major companies investing in the smaller companies and the more attractive project you have, the, the, the more aggressive they're going to be. So why haven't you guys like, as explorers, I'm talking carpenter, I've, I've interviewed maybe 20 juniors, like small, you know, sub hundred million dollar type companies, in the copper space with the copper going on the tear that it's gone on. With people like Doug and, and, and other commenters think, saying that it will it will continue to do so, um, normally th that value trickles down, you know, from the producers, the developers, to the explorers. But most of the explorers have not seen the benefits of that this year. It's been a strange year across the board with things like precious metals, but the the green metals, I don't get it. What do you think is going on, David? One for you. You mean just in terms of uh, the markets and supporting the junior companies? Yeah, it's it's a bit of a uh, it's it's tough to figure that out. I don't understand why people are being more bullish on on copper uh, globally. I mean, when you when you look at the amount of copper that's going to be needed, and I, I found an interesting report the other day that showed all of the green technologies, all the energy uh, transmission technologies and all the storage technology. It was about 12 or 14 different technologies that are part of this new, you know, blue planet initiative, if you want to call it that. And copper was in every single one of those. It was the only metal in the list that was actually listed in every single one of those technologies as being important. Copper is not a critical metal, but it's certainly a really, really important metal in all of these technologies. So you think that people would be more bullish on that. Um, you know, I don't know what it's going to take. Copper's at four, you know, been at 450 this this past week. The high is 484. So we're just off the all-time high for copper, and we know it's going to go higher. You know, Goldman Sachs has, has forecasted uh, six, uh, 630 copper or 650 copper. Uh, in the future. And I think we're going to see that. Um, so I think that's going to bring in people, you know, uh, you know, hand over fist. But I think in, in the meantime, uh, it's it's a great time to be investing in copper. Uh, the fact that you can invest in, in these companies uh, at a discount um, uh, on, on anyone's analysis, really, I think is a great opportunity for investors. Okay. So look, Doug, tell me this. You've, you've come in and helped David out and advise, advise him on what he should be doing. We've talked about the ESG component. What do companies, exploration companies, sub $100 million copper exploration companies need to do, need to have in place so that investors like me can look at it and go, do you know what? It's got all the right constituent parts. It's going to succeed where others won't. Yeah. You know, I, I need to back up on that because the expiration industry in general hasn't been getting a lot of love from investors, regardless of the commodity. And this is because there's been a structural change in mining investment. So it goes, it, it's, it's a subject unto itself. But the bottom line is that, you know, with the emergence of ETFs, they've absolutely eviscerated private placements with millennials all, all being passive investors and not wanting to pick stocks. Um, Nolan Watson from Sandstorm put out a paper a couple of years ago that said 80% of the retail mining brokers in Canada are gone. Uh, the infrastructure for investing in exploration companies has, has, has evaporated and it, and it will get rebuilt. Meanwhile, the spe you know, exploration is considered speculative. You're competing with Bitcoin, with GameStop, with you know, 
whatever the flavor of the week is, um, Tesla. I mean, even though Tesla's a big, a big, you know, speculation, it's still there. Um, so all of that is playing a role. And and the reason I joined Chicana's board was because I, well, I was raised on copper. I'm a University of Arizona grad and studied porphyry coppers throughout my master's degree. But I like copper. I like breaches, but I really like high grade. And, and Chicana knocks it out of the park. I think giant open pits are going to be phased out by the industry. 30 years ago, Rio Tinto said the future of mining is bulk underground. And I think they're right. Um, Chicana is in a good position. They might be able, we might be able to put an open pit, but it won't be very big, but there's a lot of underground. So the footprint will be minimalized, which is good from an ESG perspective. Um, the management team, if you look at them, they're all seasoned veterans. Some would call us gray beards, although I don't have a beard. Um, you know, you really do need to look at the three P's. You got to look at the, the people, the project and the plan. And, and on the third point, you know, Dave sets out a plan, puts out plenty of press releases and he executes. So it's like any other investment to the people that people qualified. Is it a good project, i.e. high grade, big potential? You know, where is that porphyry? How deep does it go? And, uh, and then, of course, the plan, how are you going to extract it? Um, that's what they have to do. And that's why I joined their board, because most of those checks and balances, they, they'd already knocked off. And it's just a matter of tweaking a few things now and, and moving the project to the next phase. Right. So that, that's specifically about Chicana. But I just, just wonder if there's anything that, well, maybe one for you, Hayden. Like you, you've been where these guys are, you know, you're up around 400 million bucks uh, now. Where Do you think the things that you had to do when you were lots more, and I know you're the new CEO, but you, 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 can, you, you can go back a bit. Um, do you think that the company had to do certain things a certain way back then? If they would, if you did those things today, would they work? And if so, you know, what are those things? I, I'm trying to help people watching this go, do you know what? Here's a company which has got all the right constituent parts. It's investable versus something that's not. It's all smoke, bluster, promotion and BS. So what does a real company need? Yeah, well, I think I agree with Doug when he describes it as uh, the people, the project and the plan. Uh, but I think the the extra step that we really needed to do from Maramaka was to communicate how we were going to do those things and why our people, uh, you know, they should have faith in our people to be able to, li- to deliver on that. Um, so, you know, Doug gave a glowing assessment of Dave um, and his ability to execute on the plan that Chicana's laid out. Um, you know, there are plenty of good people in the mining industry Um but I think sometimes as junior companies, we're not great at uh, telling that story. And I think if I go back and look at, you know, why it hasn't trickled through to the junior mining space thus far, you know, I think back to when we were debating which copper price to use in our PEA in the middle of last year. And, you know, we were arming and ahhing about using $3.15 a pound copper because we weren't quite at $3. And, you know, fast forward 15 months and where we've hit an all-time high and now we're just trading below that and people seem disappointed. Um, you know, I think there has been a healthy dose of scepticism from investors saying, okay, the copper price is run, this is going to be short-lived, although we're bullish in the long term, this is it's going to pull back, and I hear it regularly. Oh, next year, there's a wave of supply coming on, you know, Kamoa, Kakula, QB2, K of Echo, all coming on, and it's going to be a wave of supply. The longer that goes, and the, and the less likely everyone realises it is that the copper price comes back in any meaningful way, the more confidence they'll have to start trickling down that investment to the juniors. And that presents the opportunity 
for your investors to get in ahead of it. You know, go out and do your own market research and, and realise that even if this copper wave comes in, well, I think everybody's got the same information. There's going to be people buying that dip. There's going to be China restocking. There's going to be groups that need to get out in front of this supply chain risk to buy more copper, uh, which is going to support prices. And then suddenly we're in 2025 uh, when this real deficit starts to come in and, um, you know, copper price could be materially higher than it is today. Can I add on to that? Can I just run with that ball for a second? Um, I, I cover, I, I look at dozens and dozens of companies, excellent projects, excellent management, and, everything. and in almost every single case, their share price right now today, as we speak, is lower or about the, as it's as low as it's been in months, if not years. And these are all compared to years ago, you know, companies, they are better projects. There's more geophysics, there's more geology, there's just more knowledge, there's more drilling, they've got, you know, more ounces, more pounds in the ground, management's more experienced, the geologists and the engineers are more seasoned. These are fabulous, fabulous companies. And I look at the share prices and I think, you know, why are they so low? And one of the answers is they are so low because God loves smart investors and wants to give them the opportunity to buy in at beautiful prices. Because when some of these current fads, you know, Doug, Doug mentioned things like Bitcoin. I'll tell you right now, as somebody who's been involved in the newsletter business, the newsletter business has been terrible for the last couple of years. You would think that during COVID, when tens of millions of people are sitting at home watching their screen with nothing to do and getting a stimulus check from the government, you would think they'd buy a newsletter, wouldn't you? No, they don't, because they're all geniuses. All they have to do is buy an ETF and it goes up, buy Bitcoin and it goes up, buy Tesla and it goes up, buy GameStop and it goes, they're all geniuses. And, and, uh, but, when, but these are fads, these are monetary fads that are being fed by the Federal Reserve and this, these multi-trillion dollar you know, uh, Niagara's of money that, that go into the system. Uh, when at the end of the day, what makes the world work is real things. You know, it's re real people who know what they're doing, real stuff, real, you know, like, you know, like this, beautiful, this beautiful piece of sphalerite from Dalangorsk, Russia, uh, that, that, that's sitting on my desk here. It's real things that make the world work, that, that, that turn, that, turn that ore into, into metal and that make the wires and everything else, and that, you know, that, that, make, that make your iPhone work or your, your smartphone work. It's, uh, that is, that's, that's, the end, that's the end game here. And like, like what Ben Franklin said about beer, you know, beer is God's gift because he loves us. You know, low prices right now are God's gift because he loves investors who want to do well uh, in the years to come. Well, I'll, I'll be buying beer and shares. Like, I'd, like gentlemen, thank you very much uh, today. Uh, got two great companies in the shape of uh, Maramaka Copper, Chicana Copper. Do go have a look at that. Thank you, everyone, for your insight. Um, love to have you on back on soon. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Matt. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.